Well, good morning. See, I can't get, until my screen comes up, I can't tell you good morning. And I can't, I can't welcome you to GBC. I do that every Sunday. I don't know if you notice that or not. It's just kind of the thing I do. But in reality, I, I, I'm thankful that you uh, have joined us this morning. I'm, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm always refreshed to be here. I, I have um, been not feeling so well in the last few days, um, and, but I'm always energized. I'm always refreshed to be in the pulpit, always refreshed to be with you on a Sunday morning. I just wanted, another thing I wanted to do before we get started com- good here this morning is I want to encourage people to come to the equipping hour. Um, the, this morning we had the Genesis equipping hour. I, I hope, I think that if you were here, I hope that you were encouraged by it. Uh, but it, it's just a wonderful time. You get to see a different side of me a little bit with, in terms of how, how we interact. I mean, in terms of, uh, I think it was um, Kyle who said, you know, that's, it's just different, and, and I think there's others who have said that as well, that, you know, there's that, that back and forth, there's a conversation that we don't have when I'm in the pulpit. So I would just encourage you, if you haven't been coming, that you would come. But I also give a plug for, to Keith and, and my wife, who are, giving, who are doing the equipping hour every other week in terms of, I think Keith is doing the names of God, which has been a wonderful study, and then my wife has been going through uh, theology uh, just teaching through theology, which is crazy to me because, you know, she, uh, you know, she's never really had that much interest in terms of those kind of things. But now all of a sudden, all she talks about is studying theology, so which is pretty, pretty interesting. So uh, I just encourage you to come and, and enjoy that time. So as I said, good morning and welcome. Um, that, you know, there's really no other place that I'd rather be than here on a, a Sunday morning preaching from this pulpit. You know, I think of the long line of preachers who have come before me, before our time, before this time. Um, and, you know, I think of, um, I can't help but stand in awe of the Lord's faithfulness to, to His Word. Every generation, in every generation, God has given men who are unwavering in preaching the truth. And, and men have called upon the name of the Lord. This morning we looked at Genesis chapter 4 just briefly and we saw in Genesis 4.26 that at the time of uh, Seth, in the time of uh, a man named Enosh, men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. And the apostle Peter called Noah the, the preacher, a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter 2.5. Moses uh, himself was a, uh, who wrote the Pentateuch, who wrote the, the uh, books of uh, Genesis through De- Deuteronomy. He was a godly man who preached God's word to the people just prior to entry into the promised land that that long line of preachers that god has raised up in every generation stretches from genesis chapter 4 and and enosh and and noah and and noah to abraham and abraham to moses and moses to joshua and joshua to david and david to ezra and and nehemiah and the the prophets were raised up and in one accord isaiah jeremiah ezekiel daniel hosea Amos, Jonah, Micah, um, Nahum, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And and that lone line of of preachers picks up in the New Testament with Peter and Paul and Luke and the author of Hebrews and and James, uh, the Lord's brother, and Jude and and John. And after the apostles passed from the scene, there were the early church fathers who picked up the, the baton and they carried it even through the dark ages, God used godly men to preach his word. Before the Reformation dawned, God raised up men like John Wycliffe and, and John Hoos and, and William Tyndale. And of course, we're, we're all indebted to them and all indebted to the, to the reformers such as Martin Luther and, and Zwigli and, and John Calvin. And after them became, came the Scottish and English reformers such as John Knox and John Fox and Hugh Latimer and then came the Puritans, John Owen and, and Thomas Watson and Matthew Henry. And after them, the gospel began to be preached on both sides of the Atlantic. God continued to raise up men like Jonathan Edwards and, and George Whitfield and a man named uh, J.C. Ryle and, and a man who I'm sure all of you have heard of, or most of you have heard of, is uh, Charles Spurgeon and a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones and another man named R.C. Sproul and, a, and another man who's still preaching, John MacArthur, uh, Steve Lawson and his book title named a long line of godly men asked the following question how is it that each of these men 
came onto the scene in human history. And, and he answers his question in the following way. Just listen to his quote. He said, let us be sure it is God himself, the sovereign Lord of history, who raises up each generation of spiritual leaders to join this long line of godly men. God, the determiner of history, prepares the man for the hour and the hour for the man. As the sole builder of his church, the Lord Jesus Christ appoints the time when and the place where each man will find himself on the grander stage of history. With infinite genius and perfect design, Christ sovereignly chooses his men, calling them from their mother's wombs to fulfill the specific work that they will do. Even the very success they enjoy is predetermined by Christ, who alone causes the growth, end quote. Here's what I want you to get from all that. God always prepares and always raises up men according to his sovereign purpose. In the words of Lawson, he prepares the man for the hour and the hour for the man. Well, today we're returning to our study in Matthew's Gospel, which we have titled The King and His Glory. Particularly this morning, we're continuing our study on one of the most unique messengers of the Gospel a preacher of the gospel named John the Baptist. Again, a man for the hour. The Lord Jesus said of him that there was no one uh, born of women is greater than him, the lone exception being Jesus himself. That's Matthew 11. 11. <coughs> the question is, what made John the Baptist so great? We should ask ourselves that. Why did the Lord have such high praise for him? Why does Matthew use John the Baptist as further proof that Jesus is the true king who deserves our worship. Let me pray, and then we'll read the text, and then we'll dive into answering some of those questions. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning again that you would be glorified. Father, I pray as John the Baptist also prayed, may I decrease as you increase. May I be a nothing uh, except for the messenger that you would that i would just convey your message and that it would not return void in christ's name amen matthew chapter 3 we'll pick up starting in verse 1 now in those days john the baptist came preaching in the wilderness of judea saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him in all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. So they confessed as they confessed their sins. But when, they had, when, they, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for his baptisms, he said, baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to, to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones... God is able to raise up children to Abraham, and the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with an unquenchable, with unquenchable fire. Well, in Matthew, in the verses we just read, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, Matthew uses the ministry of the king's herald, John the Baptist, as further proof that Jesus is the true king who deserves our worship. Today, we're going to continue to look at the marks of his ministry. Uh, the first mark that proves that he is the herald, the, king, uh, the king's herald, is that he was a unique messenger. The second is 
that he preached an unrivaled message. Uh, the third is the third mark is that he has had an unusual mission, and the fourth mark is that he put up an uncompromising mirror. Now, last week we reviewed God, uh, Matthew's gospel up to chapter 3, so we'll jump right into the text in chapter 3 this morning. Now, by way of reminder, I believe that the Jewish religious establishment forms a thread, the thread, that helps us understand the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, just reminding you, the Jewish religious leaders will be an ever-present enemy throughout Jesus' ministry. Now, in Matthew chapter 12, the religious establishment would completely reject the Lord Jesus and accuse him of casting out demons by the work of Beelzebul. Now, in response, Jesus told them that they had blasphemed the Holy Spirit by attributing the Holy Spirit's work to Satan. That would be the unforgivable sin. Now, after that event, the religious establishment played a huge role in sending our Lord to be crucified on a Roman cross. Now, that, that is according to Matthew chapter 26, verses 3 and 4. Now, we first saw these men mentioned in Matthew chapter 2, where they, the Magi appeared in Jerusalem, and Herod gathered all of them, all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, to find out where the Messiah was to be born. Now, last week, we called them, or I called them, the Magi, or the wise men of Israel. They, these men, we have to understand that these men had great religious and political influence on the people. Now, unfortunately, as we discussed, they were in direct opposition to God's work, and they had no interest in the Messiah's arrival. Now, as I said earlier and have said several times, these men are the thread that Matthew uses to connect the account of Jesus' arrival, his birth, to the ministry of his herald, John the Baptist. In truth, John the Baptist stood in direct opposition in every way to the Jewish establishment. This opposition included Herod's successors, King Herod, that is, and the religious leaders of the Jews. They hated John, and because of his, because of his disapproval of their comfortable way of life, they hated him, they hated him because his life stood in stark contrast to theirs. Now, this fact would ultimately lead to, the, to his imprisonment and even beheading by Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee. Now, last week, now last week that we saw that John was a unique messenger, and their hatred for John really started during his ministry that we see described here in Math, Matthew chapter three, verses one through twelve. Now, the question is, who is John the Baptist? Well, let me tell you, in the words of an old Arkansas boy, John the Baptist was a pretty interesting cat. As we saw last time, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets and the forerunner of Jesus who inaugurated the New Covenant. R.C. Sproul has rightly pointed out that according to Luke 16, 16, Jesus said that the law and the prophets ruled until John the Baptist and, so, and the word until means up to and including. So therefore, John the Baptist would have been the last of the Old Testament prophets. Now, we learned again last week that God was silent for 400 years after the ministry of Malachi until the angel appeared to announce John the Baptist's arrival. We also saw that John the, John the Baptist's conception and the events around his birth were miraculous. His parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were of advanced age. Elizabeth, his mother, was actually barren when God intervened and caused her to be pregnant. Zechariah, his father, was made mute by God because he didn't believe God's message. And John himself even leapt in the womb when Mary arrived carrying the baby Jesus. And miraculously, Zechariah's tongue was loosed by God to ensure that the baby's name would be John. Now, what we have to understand is that these were no small happenings. In Luke's words, fear came upon anyone who heard of these things. The, the, the people were wondering how John or how God would use John. Truly, they couldn't have imagined what God would do with him. And they certainly couldn't have imagined that John would end up going to the wilderness and living his life in the wilderness and that he would be uh, fully against everything that the religious establishment stood for. Now, 
all this happened just prior to Jesus' birth and the Magi's visit, which was recorded in Matthew 2. Now look at your text in Matthew 3, 1. It says, Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying... Uh, now last time we saw that, that Luke actually gives a clear history of the timing of John's uh, ministry. He, 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 he's very precise with the dating of John's appearance, but Matthew's pretty general in his description. Based on everything we know, uh, Matthew is, is recording those days uh, which occurred just prior to Jesus' Jesus's appearance, first appearances after his childhood. Now, let me give you a little bit more detail about what's going on here. So evidently, Jesus had presented himself to John to be baptized. Uh, the apostle uh, John, the, uh, John the Baptist, that is. The apostle John recorded John the Baptist's description of these events in John 1, 32-34. He says this, And John bore witness saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he abided on him, and I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to him, said to me, the one whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and I myself have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So Jesus appeared to John, and, and the Lord was revealed to him by the Spirit descending and abiding on him, and John knew that this was the Son of God, and John the Baptist bore witness that he was the Son of God. This, John's description matches uh, Matthew's account in Matthew 3.13, where it says that Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. So we see the, the two events that, that are, are the same. So putting all these things together, evidently John the Baptist was not a man who enjoyed the finer things of life. He, he liked to be alone in the wilderness. And at some point, the Word of God came to John in the wilderness during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And, and after his encounter, encounter with God, John began to preach a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins around the district of the Jordan. Now, <clears throat> having given you that detail... I believe it's critical also to understand the geography surrounding these events. This was uh, the wilderness area of uh, northeast of, or this was a wilderness area north, northeast of Jerusalem. It was just south of the Sea of Galilee and due north of the, the Dead Sea. The location, let's just put it this way, the location is about as remote as you can get. It was as anti-establishment as you can get in that it was completely away from Jerusalem and the temple. It was about as far as you can get from the establishment with all of its trappings. You see, John the Baptist was nothing like the powers to be. He set up his ministry about as far as you could get from them, both literally and figuratively. On a side note, this is something of interest that I want you to put in your memory banks. This was also the general uh, geographical area, area where Elijah placed the mantle on Elisha. Now, significantly, it was in that location where God promised Elijah that there would be 7,000 in Israel who had not bowed their knee to Baal. Again, it's, it's crucial for us to understand that, that in John's day, John the Baptist's day, and in every age, there is always a remnant that God remain, that remains that is faithful to God. And so, for for this this connection, we see that that there is this this remnant that's still there, and that's the remnant that John the Baptist is preaching to, and will ultimately reach. Now, at some point in John's ministry, we see we've seen here that Jesus presented himself to John to be baptized by him, and and in the days after his baptism, Jesus began to gather his disciples, starting with Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. So they were all there together with John the Baptist. Now, we've seen that, that John's primary area of ministry was in the wilderness along the Jordan River. Again, this was completely antithetical to Israel's religious establishment. You see, the king's herald didn't live by the world's standards. That's what you, would, you need to understand. He was completely antithetical to it. Just listen to the words of, of John MacArthur. By the world standards and procedures, the coming of a king or of a great person of any sort is proclaimed and prepared for with great expense, pomp, 
and fanfare. Even the announcer dresses in the best suits, stays in the best hotels, and contacts only the best people, and makes preparation for the monarch to visit the only the best places, end quote. But that wasn't the case for John the Baptist. His parents didn't have the best pedigree. He carried out his ministry mostly in backwater places away from uh, Jerusalem, away from the best places uh, where everybody was at. Again, he was completely anti-establishment. The gospel writers, including Matthew, would not have included these things if they were just incidental or circumstantial. You see, John called the people away from the corruption of, of Israel's religious system. Their system was worldly, and it was full of empty ritualism, and it was full of ugly hypocrisy. It was, a, it was a mile wide and an inch deep. It was superficial. Again, in the words of John MacArthur, John called them away from Jer- Jerusalem and Jericho, away from the cities into the wilderness, where most people would not bother to go if they were not serious seekers. John brought them away where they were freer to listen, to think, to ponder without the distractions and the misleading leaders and they were so accustomed to following in such a a seemingly desolate place they could begin to see the greatness of this man God and even uh, the greater greatness of the one who he was announcing his coming end quote it's clear that John's ministry was God's judgment on the trappings of the established ministry in that, uh, of the Jews. There's a great lesson for us here. You see, God is not impressed with the things that tend to dazzle us in the world. We look at, we look at the riches of the world. We look at, we look at the great buildings of the world. We, we tend to look at, at numbers where there's, there's huge crowds, and we think that that's what, that's what is, is truly rich. God wants us to understand true riches. I love the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6.17. He says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. The point is, is that, that God's riches are completely different than what we see as riches. And John the Baptist stood in complete opposition to what the world sees as being uh, rich. With that as your background, I want to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 3, verse 4. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Now again, there's no throwaway details in Scripture. I believe Matthew includes these details to prove that John was something completely different than the religious leaders. He would have been a pretty interesting character even during his day. Can you imagine him coming into our midst? He claimed to be the king's herald, yet he didn't live anything like the religious leaders. They craved comfort. They were well-dressed. He dressed in camel's hair with a crude leather belt. His attire was much like Elijah, according to 2 Kings 1.8. Elijah was a a hairy man with a leather girdle girdled about his his loins. Uh, You see, John the Baptist had a a similar attire. Uh, the, The religious establishment, they ate the finest foods. Well, John the Baptist ate locusts and wild honey. They were sophisticated and worldly. He was simple and earthy. John's ministry location, his dress, his lifestyle, even his food were all in condemnation of the self-centered and indulgent religious leaders of Israel. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, sadly, they, they were being rebuked. They were being rebuked for their lifestyle just by the simple way that John the Baptist lived. And sadly, it was a rebuke to the, most co- to the most common of folks because they may not have been able to indulge in the privileges of their leaders, yet they set their leaders on a pedestal. They followed their pedestal. They, thought they're, they're, they, followed them, they set them on a pedestal and they followed them. They thought their leaders could do no wrong. You see, John the Baptist was a living 
exhibit of the dangers of living soft lives centered on worldliness and not focused on Christ. And he dramatically showed the danger of loving the world and worldly pleasure that keeps so many of us from truly following Christ. These worldly comforts cause many of us to forsake God for those comforts. How many people have you seen in your life fall away for the comforts? See, you know, it's interesting. God did, or John didn't call his followers to asceticism. He didn't call them to be monks in a desert monastery. You need to understand that. He did call them to consider the bankruptcy of a man-centered worldly system, especially that bankrupt religious system uh, that, that, that was uh, established in his day. He desired for them to see with their own eyes the true brokenness of that system. He wanted them to understand that the religious structure of that system with its temple, with its sacrifices, and with all its priests was unable to reconcile them to God. And it's no different today. It's no different today. Just going to church, just having a a big building to go to, having programs and having all the trappings of ministry, none of it will reconcile you to God. None of it. And I think that's why Matthew 3, 2 is so important. You see, John preached an unrivaled message. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, Repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, John preached an incredibly simple message. He called for his listeners to repent. This word translated repent doesn't just mean to have regret or sorrow over sin. It it means to to completely turn around, to to change direction. The, The word has the idea of changing one's mind and one's will. Biblical repentance means to change from what is wrong or sinful to what is right and what is good, from from following after the world to following God. It is a decisive move from what is uh, sinful and and going after what is sinful uh, to embracing righteousness. Every bit of John's life, every bit of John's life showed this need to turn, to turn from sin to righteousness. John Broadus tells us the word always references a changing of the mind and the purpose from, from sin to holiness. Without a doubt, repentance comes with a sorrow over sin, yet it does not stop at that sorrow. Uh, this, this type of godly sorrow leads to a change of the mind and a change of the will It changes our thinking, it changes our desire, it changes our conduct from that which is profane to that which is holy and righteous. Later on, writing to the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul describes it in this way. He says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. For you were made to have a godly sorrow so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world brings about death. End quote. Did you know that there is a sorrow that brings about death? You're sorry about the consequences of the sin. But you're not sorrowful over committing the sin against a holy God. The difference between being unconverted and being converted. You could easily say that John's command to repent could be translated, be converted. This truly must have been incredibly difficult news for the Jews to hear. After all, they were part of the covenant, right? They were God's chosen people. They were God's people. R.C. Sproul ties John's call to repentance to Israel's role as God's people. He says this, he says, Repent translates the Old Testament call to Israel to return to faithfulness, to the covenant. 
It doesn't mean self-punishment, depression, or, or remorse, end quote. In other words, God's people had abandoned God's covenant with them. They had forgot that, that God is a compassionate God, that He was compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, that He keeps loving kindness for thousands and He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. They had forgotten all of that. They had forgotten it. And John's calling them back. John's calling them back. Now, we should recognize there are two parts to his message. You see, John told them to repent, but he gave them a reason for that repentance. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's warning was that the kingdom of heaven was, was nearly there, meaning that the king was on his way. They needed to repent so that they could be ready for his ar arrival. be similar if we knew the Lord Jesus was going to walk down the middle of this aisle today. Well, how would y'all react? Would you just sit around and kind of, okay. No. If you knew the king was coming, you'd be ready for him. And that's what John was doing. He was warning them. He was warning them. And he was warning them that they needed to repent so that they could be ready for his arrival that those who were not repentant cannot receive the king and give him the glory that he deserves. The unrepentant are not fit for the king or for his kingdom. You see, the king was coming, but Israel, his people, were not ready for him. And that was a shocking message. That was a shocking message that many of them rejected because they didn't understand the king's requirements. You see, they thought that they were part of the covenant people and that, therefore it was enough. They were expecting a message of deliverance from the Romans. They were looking forward to a joyous and comforting message and John told them that they needed to turn from their wicked ways so that they would be ready to receive King Jesus. Shocking. Shocking. See, they only thought that they needed to receive the kingdom. After all, they were God's people. It was unimaginable to them that they were not ready to receive king, their king. And again, in the words of John MacArthur, the Messiah was their Messiah. The king was their king. The Savior was their Savior. The promise was their promise. Every Jew was destined for the kingdom. Every Gentile was excluded except for a token handful of proselytes. You see, they were God's covenant people. Uh, why would the king ever reject them? The kingdom was theirs. It's telling that even at our Lord's ascension in Acts chapter 1 the disciples wanted to know if it was at this time that you were, that you were restoring the kingdom to Israel now we have to understand the idea of God's kingdom actually comes from the Old Testament David spoke of God being the king and having a kingdom in several of the Psalms in Psalm 10 uh, verse 16 he says Yahweh is king forever uh, the nations have perished from his land in Psalm 29.10, he says, Yahweh sat enthroned over the flood. Indeed, Yahweh sits as king forever. In Psalm 145, verse 11 through 13, in part says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures from generation to every generation. In Daniel 2.44, Daniel promised that the God of heaven will cause a kingdom to rise up which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it, it, itself, will, it will itself stand forever. In Daniel 4.3, the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar declared that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. That was a pagan king, a Nebuchadnezzar. King Darius, another Gentile king, declared that the God of Daniel is the living God and enduring forever and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be unto the end. John understood and Matthew wrote and declared that the God of heaven is the king of heaven and the heavenly kingdom is God's kingdom. 
Interestingly, Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven 32 times in his gospel, and he's the only gospel writer to use this phrase. Mark, Luke, and John use the, word, the phrase kingdom of God. And I think what's happening is since Matthew was audience, Matthew's audience was primarily Jewish, he may have substituted heaven for God because the Jews would substitute the word heaven when referring to God to keep from speaking his name. Basically, at the end of the day, there's no major difference between the two phrases. Both refer to God's sovereign rule. One refers to God as ruler, while the other refers to God's kingdom itself. But both refer to God's kingdom and His rule, His sovereignty over all things. In Matthew 19, verses 23-24, through 24, Matthew records Jesus as using those two phrases interchangeably, showing that there really is no difference between the two. See, when John the Baptist declared that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, what John was saying is that the king was on his way. His arrival is absolutely imminent, and that repentance was the key that would usher in God's kingdom. Yet, the religious establishment would absolutely reject their king. And sadly, many of the people who followed them would reject him also. Later in Matthew's Gospel, the Jew, Jesus would rebuke the leaders and, and those who blindly followed them. He says this. He says this. Let them alone. Speaking of the Jewish leaders, let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. That was sadly the state of Israel during that during John's ministry this leads us to the third mark of John's ministry John had an unusual mission look at verses 5 and 6 Matthew 3 5 and 6 then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins you see John's ministry had a in spite of where it was at in spite of what he looked like, John's ministry had a, an incredible impact on the people. They were coming out from incredible distances and even from Jerusalem to hear him preach the message of repentance. The, the people recognized John as one of the great prophets. The, the Jewish religious establishment, they came to understand this later in Matthew 21. They say this, but if we say that these, these things came from men, we fear the crowd, for they all regard John as a prophet. You see, the Jews were, were coming to John to be baptized, but, but, and they saw him as a prophet, but John's baptism was a completely different type of baptism uh, than the Jews had understood. Historically, they had practiced uh, what was called ritual washings of the hands and the feet and even of the head. These uh, Levitical washings were used to repeatedly purify oneself from sin. A group called the Essenes practiced a type of ceremonial washing that again was similar to baptism but wasn't exactly the same. All of these things were re repeated for repeated sins. You see, John's baptism was a completely different animal. John's baptism was a one-time act. The Jews only used that type of baptism for those outside the covenant, for the Gentiles. So it was incredibly shocking to consider this one, this one time baptism being performed by the Jews. It was, it was shocking because it was actually used, this one time baptism was normally used when a Gentile converted to Judaism. In other words, baptism was how someone born outside of the covenant became a part of the covenant. Any Jew baptized in that way would, make, would be making the shocking admission that he was not part of God's people. Think about that. Said another way, it was a shocking admission that they were not a part of the kingdom of God, which in their minds, the Jewish mind, would have been a birthright. It would have been crazy for any Jew to admit that they needed to be baptized to be a part of the chosen people. After all, they were God's chosen people, right? 
by ethnicity. And they were a fiercely prideful people. You know, Philippians 3, 4 through 6, Paul gives a hint of this fleshly, fleshly pride of being part of God's covenant people. Just listen to his boast. He says this, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. I mean, what Paul is saying is, is that if anybody ought to be right with God, it was me. That act of baptism by John signified to a watching world their recognition that just being a part of God's covenant people would not, could not save them. To be saved, they had to repent and forsake sin. They had to fully trust in the Lord for their salvation. Their works of righteousness were no better than Adam and Eve's works of righteousness in the garden and covering themselves with the fig leaf. Their works of righteousness, which was in the law, according to what Paul said, was as filthy rags before a holy and just God. They needed to be washed clean with a cleansing that only God could provide. That was what the baptism signified. They could only come into God's kingdom through repentance and faith, just like the Gentiles. And that would have been unthinkable to the Jewish religious leaders. And it would have been unthinkable to most of the Jews. Truly, as we saw in Philippians 3, it was unthinkable to the Apostle Paul before Christ appeared to him and miraculously saved him. Now next time we're going to see the last mark of John's ministry. He put up an uncompromising mirror. As part of that study, I want us to try to understand the significance of the Old Testament quote from Isaiah in Matthew 3.3. 3. But as we consider John the Baptist and his life and his ministry, I want us to be reminded of our Lord's high praise for him. He was a great man as, as greatness should be measured. He, he exemplified what it means to be a kingdom citizen. Now, in thinking this through, let me, let me give you a, a few ways that we should emulate John the Baptist in his ministry. I want you to really think about this. I mean, it, especially in light of the, the world that we live in, especially in light of the church, especially in light of what we see in churches today. Let me give you these marks. First, John was fiercely obedient to God and His Word. John's message was credible to his hearers because his life matched his message. When he proclaimed the need to repentance or for repentance, John did so from a heart and attitude of repentance toward God. You see, John had fully submitted himself to God and his to himself to God's commands. He didn't question God's command. He, he followed God's will for his life from the very beginning of it, literally from the womb. Second, so first he was obedient to God and his word. Second, he, was, he faithfully proclaimed God's word in the face of great opposition. John called for Israel and, and for Israel's leaders to repent of their sins. He warned them of the Lord's judgment. Now, I hope that you can tell from our study, I hope you can see that that was not a popular message among the elites. That was not a popular message. To walk in and tell them that they need to repent. It was a message that would ultimately get his head taken off. I mean, ultimately they beheaded him. I mean, can you imagine? You're not a good preacher until you get to your beheaded. Yet, he never backed down from proclaiming the truth to those who oppose God. Third, third, he was a humble servant of God. John 
didn't reside in a comfortable home in the finest area of Jerusalem. He didn't preach his message in the temple alongside the the so-called great teachers. John spent his time in the wilderness of Judea. He was clothed in camel's hair. His food was locust and wild honey. Now, we don't have to eat weird food to be holy. You don't have to set up camp. I can't, I'm not telling any of you to go set up camp in the middle of nowhere. You, know, you don't have to do that to lead a righteous life. Yet, yet John willingly humbled himself to God's calling. That, he, he did what God called him to do. You know, that long line of, of godly men, God makes the man for the time. That's what he did. He didn't, he didn't go against it. He never seemed to waver in doing what God called him to do, no matter what it was or where it was. Fourth, fourth, he was filled and fully controlled by the Holy Spirit. When you look at the details of John's life, he would have been considered kooky even in his day. Can you imagine him today? Yet he was a man who was fully filled, fully controlled by the Spirit of God. Luke 1.15 says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. You see, John was a man who lived in submission to the Spirit's direction. He was also self-controlled, fifth, self-controlled. John lived without the comforts of this age. He lived, or his age, any age. He lived in the wilderness among the animals. According to Luke 1.15, he never indulged in wine or strong drink. It's doubtful he ever enjoyed rich food. He was self-controlled. He had his self under control. Sixth, he fully understood and embraced God's purpose for him. John knew how God would use him. John knew that his ministry would have to decrease as Jesus' ministry increased. And John embraced that reality. Just listen to his words in John, that John the Apostle records in John 3, 29 and 30. He says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. His joy has been made full because he's he's seen the Lord Jesus and he knows that the Lord Jesus is going to increase and that he must decrease. That's what he says. He must increase, but I must decrease. John fully embraced that. John fully embraced his plan, God's plan. Matthew 3.11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And I am not fit to remove his sandals. The, the greatest man ever born of women is not fit to remove his sandals. He understood. He understood his place. He understood God's purpose for him. Seventh, he rested in God's sovereign plan. You know, we don't know all the details of John's life. We're only given these few highlights. But he doesn't, <clears throat> he doesn't seem to be a man who fretted about God's plan for his life. You know, what, what's God going to do with me? What, what's his plan for me? He, he didn't seem to be a man that fretted about that. He understood God's sovereign purpose and plan, and he fully rested in it. He willingly decreased when the time came. He even endured imprisonment and beheading. He endured, he endured great disappointment even. Uh, Keith and I were talking about it this morning, and how disappointing it, it must have been to be languishing in a, in a, in a, in a jail cell, cell waiting, uh, awaiting his punishment, whatever that was going to be. Yet, by all indications, by all indications, John never wavered. He rested in God's sovereign plan. Eight. He faithfully preached to win souls to the Lord. John clearly didn't back down. You know that song, I Won't Back Down? That's a Gainesville song, isn't it? 
but John exemplified. He would not back down. He didn't water down the message of salvation. He didn't say, oh, you know, uh, I, I, you know, yeah, you're, you're, you're a son of Abraham. You're okay. No. He told them that they needed to repent. They need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lord is coming. You need to be ready. Make ready for him. He didn't water down the message of salvation even when faced with great opposition. He faithfully preached the message. He faithfully challenged the Jews. Told them they needed to confess. See, John, John the Baptist stands as a pattern for all those who seek genuine greatness. For all those who seek genuine greatness. So you want to be truly great? Be, a, be, a, be one who is obedient to God and His Word. Faithfully proclaim God's Word even in the face of great opposition. You're being faced with opposition in your school or in your work. Be one who faithfully proclaims the, the Word of God, the truth who stands for the truth. Be a humble servant. Be filled and fully controlled by the Holy Spirit. Be self-controlled. I understand and embrace God's purpose for you. Rest in God's sovereign plan. And faithfully preach to win souls. That's John, that's John the Baptist's life. May it be our lives as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we could spend time around your word. Pray that you would use this, these words where I fall short, that you would use them in a mighty way. Thank you for your goodness toward us and your mercy. May we live by faith. May we live by faith. By faith in the Son of in the, in the Son of God, our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.